I want to ask you a quick question. Uh, how many of you have uh, carbon monoxide uh, sensors in your home? How many have you covered? Most of you, yes. I don't think you can buy a house today without one. Uh, but the thing is, is do you know why you have carbon monoxide sensors in your house? Um, uh, the reality of it is, and the reason why you have it is because carbon monoxide is actually very dangerous for your body. And the reason for that is, is because your cells cannot distinguish between carbon monoxide and oxygen. Uh, In your cells, there's a little slot in your cell for an oxygen atom to fit into, and your cell can't say, well, that's an oxygen atom, and and that's a carbon monoxide atom, and so I'll I'll, uh, dismiss the carbon monoxide and take on the oxygen. No, it actually, uh, the monoxide goes into your cell, uh, and um, they're so identical that you you can't distinguish the things, and you, and then if you breathe in a large amount of carbon monoxide, your body will actually suffocate. And the danger is, is that you don't realize that this suffocation is actually happening to you. You you think everything's fine, systems are all go. You're breathing, uh, your lungs are expanding and contracting. You you feel the air going in and out of your nostrils and your lungs. Your, your body's going through all the motions that it would regularly go through for breathing. But in reality, you're being asphyxiated. You're suffocating, and you don't even know it. And spiritually speaking, this is what idols do when they take the wrong place in our hearts. The place that is only reserved for God. Uh, Idols like money, time, power. Things we simply cannot live without. They, they seem to fit so easily into our hearts because they come with the allure of being trusted the same way that we would draw on trust and, and trust in God. It, it sometimes feels like a perfect fit, doesn't it? That idol sitting atop our heart. And this is because idols function as counterfeit substitutes for God in several ways. Idols attempt to give us security and satisfaction, don't they? Idols tend to make promises to satisfy us because what they might be able to afford us, they might be able to afford us privilege, power, fame. Uh, Probably many of you have Instagram accounts trying to become Insta-famous, wanting that fame, physical delight, gratification, They promise money or wealth. Idols even promise meaning and significance for your life. They promise us that we'll be justified or maybe we'll just be okay in the eyes of the world. We'll be accepted by the world. We'll have status. We'll be accepted and trusted that we are actually worthwhile. We mean something. We're worth something to the world if we trust in idols. We'll actually measure up. Uh, These are the promises of the idols of the world. And when we allow idols to replace God, we falsely believe that nothing's really wrong with it. Just like our cells can't distinguish between oxygen, carbon monoxide, sometimes we have a very difficult time distinguishing between idols and the trust that we place in them and the, and the trust we should place in God. 
and we think everything is okay. We're fine. It's fine. But what's really happening is that we are suffocating ourselves spiritually. And ultimately, the idols with all of their promises will leave us under the judgment of God if we do not repent and trust in God and God alone. And today, as we look at the book of Revelation, specifically in Revelation chapter 16, um, in, in starting in verse 17, go, and we'll go all the way to chapter 19, verse 10, uh, we're going to see the finality and the fulfillment of God's judgment. Uh, John warns us in this, passage, in this passage that if we trust in the idolatrous things of this world, we will be left weeping and wailing because we are empty-handed. Because the things of this world are insignificant and worthless. They're vain. They're fleeting offerings that the world has to offer. And we as God's people need to understand that the Bible's exposure of the destructive acts of effects of idolatry in order that we might appreciate this, this seriousness that the Bible passionately teaches us about. God is trying to teach us over and over and over again in the Scriptures that idols aren't worth their pursuit. Idols aren't worth the place that we give them in our hearts. And so, let us turn to Revelation chapter 16 and pick up at the seventh bowl of God's wrath to see what, God, what John has to say about us and about idolatry. And we're also going to see, as we will read later, what the saints receive as they persevere. Now, since we're covering such a large section of Scripture this morning, I'm going to start by reading out of chapters 16 and 17 and 18. Some portions of Scripture there. I'll tell you where I'm starting. I'll tell you where we're going. Uh, and then in the second half of the sermon, uh, we'll pick up chapter 19. Okay? So start with me. You follow along as I read aloud, starting in uh, Revelation chapter 16, in verse 17. John writes, The seventh angel poured out his bowl in, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain were to, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. 17.1 Then, 
one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexually, sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Move down to 17.15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw were the, were, were the prostitute, where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and the nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are, and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that is dominion over the kings of the earth. In 18.1, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Let's pray. Oh God, as we read about your judgment poured out upon Babylon, God, help us have eyes to see the idolatrous nature nature of Babylon. Help us have eyes to see how we have even trusted in the idols of this world and the fleeting pleasures of this world. And God, help us cast away those idols that we might trust in you and you alone for our security, for our refuge, for our peace. God, you are the only one worthy of our hope. You are the only one worthy of our worship. You're the only one worthy of our dedication. You, God, are worth it. God, may we, as your people who have gathered to praise you this day and sit under the teaching of your word, may we endure. May we remain faithful until the end. Oh God, come and help us now. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So the main point, I believe of this text is that, uh, and, and which will be the main point of my sermon. So if you walk away with anything else, it's up on the screen for those of you who are taking notes. The main point is, is that perseverance is worth the wait since God rightly judges Babylon and invites those who endure to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Perseverance is worth the wait since God will rightly judge Babylon and invites those who, en- who endure to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The rest of our time together will take primarily the shape of two parts. 
First, we're going to see the absolute and swift judgment of God for Babylon. And then we will see that all our waiting is worth it when we join the Lamb of God at his great marriage supper. So our first point, the God's judgment on Babylon. What we have in these verses from chapter 16 to the end of chapter 18 is God's great judgment on what the scriptures call the prostitute or the city of Babylon. God judges Babylon because of Babylon's idolatry. Martin Luther defined idolatry this way. It's whatever your heart clings to or relies upon, that is your God. So I would simply ask you today, in an, in an honest evaluation of your heart, what are you clinging to? What are you hoping in? Where does your loyalty lie? Trust and faith, as Luther would say, of the heart alone makes both a God and an idol. Great commentator G.K. Beale adds that idols are whatever your heart clings to for ultimate security. So friends, where's your ultimate security? Idolatry truly is harmful and detrimental to us. You may not believe that. You, you may think that, well, can't I just dabble a little bit? Can't, can't I serve two gods, Thomas? I, I, I love Jesus, but I love my bank account too. I, I, I love Jesus, but, but I love clicking around on the internet and buying things I don't need. I love Jesus, but my affections are for other things too. Isn't that okay? No. It is dangerous. It is harmful. When we seek safety and refuge and pleasure and satisfaction and contentment from the things of this world, we are being terribly foolish and ignorantly blind. Recall what Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 44 about the foolishness of idolatry. He writes, They, that is those who make idols, know not, nor do they discern, For he, that is God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their heart, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it, half of the idol, uh, I burnt in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted the meat that I have eaten. And Also shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood that I've carved into an idol? Do you see the foolishness of idolatry? And when we truly trust in idols, we're blind to it. I say, awake. Have eyes to see. Ask for God to show you and expose to you the idols of your own heart. In our text today, there are four ways that idolatry is expressed and judged in Babylon. I want to show you these. So we're going to look at, I'm going to show you some places throughout the text of how God judges uh, the idolatry of Babylon. 
The first thing that God judges for her about is that her inhabitants are sexually immoral and they have abominations and impurities. Now, as you've been listening to these sermons in the book of Revelation, one of the things that we know that sexual idolatry references is specifically, uh, I, it, sexual immorality specifically references idolatry. But here, in the combination of what's going on in these texts that we will read, it's not just idolatry, it's you've made an idol out of sex, out of abominations and impurities. Look with me at 17, chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with the gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand the golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And then down in 18.3, towards the end, um, uh, they, the, the kings of the earth had committed immorality with her. And then down in 18 verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So God judges Babylon. God judges the people of the world for idolizing and finding their hope and trust in sexual immorality. We also see that Babylon is uh, the second thing that she's judged for with her idolatry is the insatiable uh, thirst for wealth. Look at 18, the end of 18.3. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her power, the power of her luxurious living. And then 18.10, they will stand far off and fear her, uh, for, fear the torment of her and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment came all because of her luxurious living and insatiable thirst for wealth. And then in verse 16, it says, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's dressed her things with the fi- she's dressed herself with the finest things of the world. And 19, towards the end, and all or and alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships and sea grew rich with her wealth. Babylon and the inhabitants of the earth have made an idol out of wealth. And then God judges this great city that is split into three for her great pride. Look at 18.7, what Babylon says of herself in 18.7, I'm sorry. She, that is Babylon, glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her like a measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. What pride existed in her heart. And this is the same pride that Isaiah prophesied out of 47, and now God is pouring out judgment upon the pride of of Babylon. And finally, we see that ultimately God pours out his wrath because of Babylon's lewd, licentious, and luxurious idolatry while she drinks upon the blood of God's people. 
Let me remind you, friends, that if you cast down your idols, if you flee only to God to find refuge in Him and Him alone, the world will not love you. The world will not look kindly upon you. The world will seek to devour you. Remember, just as Jared preached to us last week, that these seven bowls of God's wrath is God's direct, vindicating, victorious, and ferocious response to the requests of the martyrs back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, where those who had been killed for their faith, those who had endured, those who had pressed on and remained faithful to God were killed and they wondered, God, how long Will you allow this injustice to go on? How long will you withhold your judgment on these who kill us? God in His final judgment of the world will justly punish them for worshiping and trusting in anything and everything but Him and killing, their peop- killing His people along the way. God will be just to pour out this judgment on the world for their idolatry. And as stunning and horrific as this judgment is upon the world, Babylon, in fact, comes to such... This comes very, very quickly. The the timing of it, the, the, the quickness of God's pouring out of His judgment is bewildering. Suddenly, all the effort to hoard money, wealth, Luxury, power, sensual indulgences, and devour and the devouring of God's people collapses in an instant. Look at 1810. They will stand far off. That is the kings of the earth, in fear of her torment, saying, For in a single hour your judgment has come. It's 17. For in a single hour, all the wealth has been laid to waste. And then in 1819, for in a single hour, she, that is the great city of Babylon, with all of her idolatry, has been laid to waste. Friends, let me tell you something. When you see a phrase in God's word repeated multiple times over and over again, you need to pay attention. And what you need to pay attention to here is that if you trust in the idols of this world, they will vanish in an instant upon the day of God's judgment. In an instant, all of what you've worked for, all of what you've hoped in, if it is not God, it will be gone. And notice, what are they left there standing doing? What are they left there? They're left there empty-handed, weeping and wailing. The kings of the earth in 18.9 weep and wail. The merchants weep and wail in 18.11. The ship owners and the sailors weep and wail. And these weepings and wailings and the tears that they cry are selfish tears. They are tears shed because of the loss of their worldly possessions, the loss of their power, and the loss of their positions. They're not broken hearted because they don't have God. They're broken hearted because what they trusted in is literally burning down in front of them. 
They do not have godly remorse for their losses. They're not calling this sin what it is. Pure, unadulterated idolatry. They're not weeping because they violated the greatest commandment to love God and God alone with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. No, they're weeping because everything that they hoped in, everything that they trusted in and worshipped and sought satisfaction and safety in is lying in a burning waste heap because God rightly judged it for what it was. Worthless, vain substitutes for Him. Friends, there is no substitute for God. I don't care how big your bank account is, how big our army is, how big our nation is, how much fame you have, how many followers you have on social media. It will vaporize in an instant and it is meaningless. God is the only one worth your following. God is the only one worth banking on he is the only sure foundation he will last for eternity he is eternal he will be there but the things of this world will vaporize when god judges the idolatry of this world all who have submitted themselves to such sinister and vile rebellion will receive their just punishment The alluring vanities of the world will last merely a season. It's only Christ that will will empower us to endure until the completion of God's judgment against all the evil that we seek at times to satisfy our souls. It's only Christ that will satisfy you. Only God. And for those of us who are Christians, those of us who would say, we're aligned with God, we're following Jesus, I love Christ we must realize that God has called us to forsake the world and follow His Son. Listen to the call from heaven in chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Friends, if we dabble with the world's pleasures, we will suffer the wrath of God. Come out of her, God calls us. Our ways, our lives are not to be marked by the things of this world or the idolatry of Babylon. Babylon, again, was judged for sexual immorality and her perverseness. God's people, though, are a holy people. A priesthood set apart, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, set free from the bondage of sin. So that means, friends, that you can live free of pornography. You can live free of crude jokes and gambling of all sorts, whether on apps or in casinos. You can be free of drunkenness and selfishness and harshness and laziness and meaninglessness. You can be free, friends. We can be sexually pure, speak words of encouragement and grace, wisely spend the money, spend and give our money away. We can abstain from food or drink if it corrupts us or another. We can be kind and we can work diligently for the glory of God and God alone, not for ourselves. 
Again, Babylon is judged for her opulent wealth and luxury. Let me be clear. Wealth is corrupting and seductive. The kings wail and weep at the total destruction of the luxurious economic system with all of its benefits. Wealth blinds us to the sinfulness of sin and somehow lures us to call evil things good and good things evil. And then we'll try to do anything just because we have the money to blow. But God's people, called out of the world, are called to consider what it costs to live at their means and then be radically generous with the rest. Hear me again, friends. God is calling us to live at our means and be radically generous with the rest. Are you storing up wealth and living luxurious, throwing money around simply because you can, rather than being generous and cheerfully giving away what above, above what you, your means are? Or better yet, have you given to God recently? There's a question for the day. Can I look at my checkbook in the last week or month and see if I've given to God? Tax season is upon us. And those of you who have given to charities or given to this church, you you receive a donor statement. Did you get a donor statement for last year's giving? Did you give any of your income at all last year? What is sacrificial, generous, and cheerful giving offered to the Lord for the work of the church? Or or was your giving sacrificial and generous, cheerfully offered to the Lord for the work of the church and the spread of the gospel? And, and and, And hear me, friends. I'm not saying that you only have to give to the church with what you have above your means. Yes, you should offer to God through the church. There are great ministries out there worth supporting. I'd love to talk to you about some of those after the service if you're interested. But we need to take an honest evaluation. Are we storing up wealth for ourselves or are we living at our means and being generous with the rest? God will judge us for that. Babylon was also judged for her pride. Idolatry makes much of the self, doesn't it? We think we're in control. We think we have the reins. When we commit idolatry, we're saying that our way and our understanding of God is greater than God revealing himself to us through the word. This is not what God's people have been called out of the world to do. We must cultivate in our hearts humility and a dependence upon God He is our only security. He is our only greatness. He is our future, friends. And one of the most clear examples of this, the pride of Babylon on display for us today is in the war of Russia against Ukraine. As Vladimir Putin attacks the Ukrainian people, he has spoken harshly of them, He has puffed himself up with pride and he is seeking glory and power like no other world leader today. All while oppressing people and committing acts of war and injustice because he wants to make much of himself instead of worshiping the true God of the Bible. 
But we know that His pursuit of such glory and power and prestige at the cost of human lives, including Christians, will ultimately undermine Him. And we know this also, that the power and glory that Putin seeks to grab will vaporize in an instant when he is judged by God. He can warmonger today, but it will all be a waste heap tomorrow at the judgment of God. But then Babylon is judged for how she treats God's people as they live in this world. And friends, the people of God do not submit to the idolatry of Babylon. God's people are called out of the world to be different. We're called to love one another. You're called to encourage one another. Think of others' interests interests more higher than your own interest. We're called to build one another up not tear each other down and be divisive. We're called to fight for each other's holiness. We're not called to slander and gossip, speaking ill of one another. We are to encourage and edify. We are God's people to be unified and built up in the Lord to accomplish our mission, which is helping people know Jesus and make Him known in D.C. and around the world. Are you joining God in that mission? to unify His people on that mission? Do not join the world in its devouring of God's people. So, it's clear. It should be more than clear to us that God pours out a just wrath and punishment upon Babylon with all of her idolatry. So let us now turn to chapter 19 to see what the saints have been waiting on as they faithfully endure. 19, starting in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her her immorality, and He has avenged on her the blood of His saints. Skip down to verse 9, or verse 6. In chapter 19, then I heard what seemed again to be a voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Here in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, Heaven responds to the destruction of Babylon and then the marriage supper of the Lamb unfolds. 
The response is victorious shouts of praise and adoration for God, for the God of heaven, who has conquered and vanquished his enemies. Note, though, that before we look at some of the specific content of these verses, the link between what we heard in 16 to 18 and here in 19. There's a, there's a very interesting link here. That link is the two women that are described in all of this text. First, we had the adornment of the prostitute of Babylon. And then we have before us now the bride of Christ. Recall from 17, 3 to 4, that the woman of Babylon appears in regal robes, purple and scarlet, adorned with the jewels of gold and precious stones. And then in 19.8, and then a little bit further, we, in 19.8, we get some of the description of the bride of Christ. But then a little bit further in 21, 9 to 10, John actually sees an angel and the angel says, come, look at the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ is clothed with fine linens, bright and pure. She's like the brightest and most pure white you have ever seen, near blinding. She even looks like, as we'll see, read later in 21, 9 to 10, she looks like the new city of Jerusalem coming down from the heaven, adorned with beautiful jewels and radiant light. But... These two women stand in very opposite positions. The woman of Babylon is now empty-handed, weeping and wailing while intoxicated with the blood of God's people. But the bride of Christ is an enduring and faithful and righteous people, untainted by the pleasures and vanities of the world. And she has been granted by God as a gift the fine linen that she is clothed with, and the righteous deeds of the saints. These righteous deeds that adorn His people, they do this because of the sacrifice of the Son, which cleansed them and forgave them. These are not meritorious or justifying acts of the saints, but these, are all, these works are all done because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. What, really, what this really demonstrates to us, friends, is that there are rewards for everyone. You will get yours. Either you can align yourself with the tempting, fleeting pleasures of this world, with its vast luxuries, its power-mongering and prosperity, or you can patiently endure while trusting in the promises and provisions of God. If you are worldly and you will receive worldly rewards, but you will be left standing empty-handed and weeping and wailing at the day of judgment. You will weep and wail at the loss of everything that you loved instead of God. Or you can believe and trust in God's promise through His Son Jesus and you will have your hand in your hand one of, the gross, most, the, one of the greatest and most satisfying invitations of all time to an eternity with the most magnificent and marvelous and unimaginable gift, the presence of God Himself seated at the head of the table. 
The prostitute of Babylon with all of her unfounded and empty promises will be utterly laid to, wet, laid to waste. But because of the grace, kindness, mercy, and faithful promises of God to forgive His people, the bride of Christ will have one of the most magnificent and spectacular invitations that makes a Super Bowl ticket look like local arcade tokens. Oh, how coveted that Super Bowl ticket is. But what would it be like laid beside the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb? And what should really be going off in our head? Because if we're all honest, if we all are real with ourselves for just a minute, we should be asking, how is it possible that those of us who are so prone to idolatry ourselves could join in such a great feast. What have we deserved to get this kind of invitation? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Or we could ask, how can such Fickle hearts like ours be prepared with righteous deeds worthy to clothe ourselves with and sit at Jesus' table in the end. Friends, this is possible only because of Christ. He has come to seek and save idolatrous people like you and like me. He has lived his entire life solely committed to the will of God. He never succumbed to the temptation of Satan to give him all the nations. In his, as he endured the 40 days of wilderness, he was obedient to the point of death on the cross so that forgiveness for you and forgiveness for me could be accomplished if we find our safety and satisfaction in him and him alone. Have you believed in Christ and repented of your sins? Today can be the day of salvation, friend. Today can be the day that you lay down your idols and you follow Christ. I personally would love for you to come and talk to me afterwards. I know Jared would love to talk to you or Doug. Or maybe it's a friend that you came with today that invited you. I'm sure they would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and lay down our idols. For those of us invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we must, we must live lives that honor God and endure and persevere until the end. How will we do this? How will you endure? What will our lives really look like? Recall that most of the, much of the judgment of God for the world has ties back to Exodus. If you remember, most of the plague, most of the bowls resemble the plagues of Exodus. And during the Exodus, God's people fled from Egypt and Moses led the way of God, as God's chosen servant for his people at that time. So one of the ways that we can live lives that are faithful and enduring in this world is to actually look to the example of Moses, specifically that example that is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. 
Because this is what Hebrews writes of Moses there. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He endured. He looked to Christ. He looked to the promised Christ. He he didn't know it was going to be Jesus of Nazareth, but he knew that God had made a promise that he could bank his life on. And friends, that promise has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So what will our lives look like as we live faithfully to God, renouncing our idols, following Jesus? Well, we will not seek the benefits of what this world has to offer, like the privilege and power and fame that names uh, and the names of those that are powerful and famous, what they might afford for us. We won't seek those benefits. We, like Moses, we won't seek the name of Pharaoh over our house. It will be the name of God. The banner of Christ will be the banner that we wave. Another thing is, is that we will live lives that deny and flee from the fleeting pleasures of sin. What does it say? Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to live a life of luxury and leisure under the fleeting pleasures of sin. So too, this should mark the people of God today. Also, we as God's people, as we live faithfully and endure in this world, we will not be enamored and desirous of the treasures of Egypt or America or France or wherever else your money might be. Rather, we will join the remain, all the people of God to endure the mistreatment of those who follow Christ. Is this what you're setting yourself up for? To endure the mistreatment of those who align themselves with Jesus? Or are you setting yourself up for worldly success and fame and power and glory here that will not last for eternity? We will consider as we live faithfully and endure in this world the reproach of Christ, the mistreatment and misunderstanding the harsh and murderous intentions of the world for Jesus because he is more valuable than anything the world can do to us or has to offer for us. He is more valuable than our own life because to die is Christ. If we faithfully endure, he will be our lasting treasure. He will not be in the burning heap of the idols of this world. He will be seated at the head of the table that you are invited to, faithful saint. The great wedding feast of the Lamb truly does await the people of God who live with faithful endurance as they await Jesus' final day of judgment. And if this great wedding feast awaits faithful saints, we should make sure that we faithfully endure until the end. 
let us keep from idolatry, living godly and upright lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we wait, we will rightly celebrate that time of awaiting. And the celebration that the church, that Jesus has given the church to remind us that we are waiting for a better future. There are better and more glorious things that await us. Namely, Jesus Himself, He has given us the Lord's Supper as a pointer, as a pointer to that wedding feast. And since we know from Revelation 19 that this supper is only reserved for those who are invited, we should think well ourselves about our participation in this supper, in this wonderful celebration. We should think well about our regular participation in the supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Christ has accomplished for Christians on the cross to establish us as God's people in His new covenant. His work secures the invitation that we have to the banquet feast in Revelation 19. And Jesus told us that at the establishment of the Lord's Supper in Mark chapter 14, He said this to the disciples, that, I, that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. So at the judgment, at the day of judgment, Jesus will sit down and have the feast with us. And he's been waiting for that. He awaits that time to drink and dine with us. Christ is awaiting the great day when He will be able to dine with us and celebrate all that He has done to bring about salvation and faithful endurance in the lives of His people. Note that those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they don't come empty-handed. They come with an invitation to the feast as we see in 19.9. This means that only those who are forgiven and made righteous, clothed with that bright, pure linen and the jewels of heaven will be able to sit down and join him at this meal. And so today, we are going to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. And we must know that only those who have been changed by God, forgiven of their sins, who trust in Him, repent of their sins of idolatry, and have been baptized as repentant Christians are invited to the table. This means, friends, that in a room with this many people, that it's very likely that not everyone has experienced God's changing of their heart. Nor has everyone believed in Jesus and repented of their sins. I'm not that foolish to believe that that's true of everyone in this room. So it's also likely that not everyone has also neither been baptized as a Christian. So this means that not everyone is going to come up here and partake of the Lord's Supper today. And let me say to you, that is okay. One, why is it okay? It's because this is a serious meal of celebration of what Christ has done for his people. His people are invited. If you don't have an invitation, you wouldn't walk into a dinner party that you're not invited to, would you? So what can you do if you don't participate today? One, 
You can watch Christians faithfully get up and proclaim with their act of getting up to come and partake that they do trust in God, that they are fleeing from all their idolatry, and they are banking on God for all eternity. Two, you can ask God to have mercy on you and change your heart, lead you to repentance, trust in him and him alone. And we would be glad to talk with you if God is working and moving in your life that way. So yes, I would ask you that if this is not true of you this morning, that you watch Christians who have that invitation, who've been changed by God, come and partake of the Lord's Supper. It is okay with us if you sit and watch us do that. But this doesn't mean that we do not want everyone here to be invited to the Supper or the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We would love for you to trust in Christ and stop sinning against God. We would love for you to be baptized as a Christian if you haven't been. But it's not our desire that makes it possible to participate in this meal. Only the work of God in your life, which brings about repentance, belief, obedience to baptism, opens up this invitation to the table. So, chapters 16 to 19 of Revelation contain the final judgment of God against the earth for the worship of idols and false gods. God's people are those people who faithfully endure because they know that at everything that the world has to offer will be burnt up on the day of judgment. God is our only safe refuge, friends. He is the only one who is trustworthy. He is the only one worthy of our worship and allegiance. If the people of God trust in anything else, and the people of the world trust in anything else, then the end is an eternity of weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth. However, if we forsake all the world has to offer and find our ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone, then we will endure and we will be invited to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious future we have before us. A future worth waiting for and enduring in this world. Let me pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word and see what you have to say to us. God, may we flee and forsake idols in our hearts and minds. May we trust in you and you alone. May we hope in you. May we bank on you. May we follow your son Jesus all of our days, all the way to the marriage supper. Father, we love you, and we pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.